Welcome to the Human Reboot with me, Emma Last. We have uplifting, inspiring and diverse reboot stories from people sharing the courageous, honest, authentic and sometimes difficult life lessons. The Human Reboot will provide proven mentally flourishing formulas and practical tips to help you to live life to the full, giving you direction and hope. Make your mental fitness and well-being a daily priority. Learn to pause so that you can get clear and perform at your best. Switch off to switch on. It's time for your Human Reboot. On the Human Reboot podcast today, I have with me Tom Oxley. Tom is a TEDx speaker, runs Bamboo Mental Health, a Bijou consultancy that advises some big names. He reviews employers, providing evidence-based strategies and training, and he believes any employer can support any employee on mental health. They just need to be shown how. Tom has consulted for Mind, Time to Change, a Mindful Employer. And I am really excited about this conversation today as I have actually used Tom's TEDx talk all around how you can support mental health and well-being in the workplace, really, in a number of my training sessions with people. So when I reached out to Tom and he said, yes, he would come on the podcast, I was really quite excited. So, Tom, tell us a little bit more about you. Okay. So outside, away from screens and away from work, I live in Norwich in Norfolk and we're quite close to the coast and I really enjoy the kind of downtime, camping and swimming and hanging out with my seven-year-old girl who turns eight tomorrow. So that's, that's what life is like. It's quite modest. I like to live in such a way that I'm not kind of forever trying to grab the next big thing. I don't employ anybody. I work with loads of people, but I don't employ anybody. I've got no appetite to rule the world. Uh, And and that really helps me understand sort of my, my levels, my working levels, my sort of housing, my, you know, my hopes and dreams. It really helps me manage that because I've been in a place before where I thought that I was indestructible and I thought that I would be invincible to go and grab what I want in the world. And it didn't work out. <laughs> so I uh, so that's that's a that's about me. That's like, oh the other thing I really love is food. All right, not <laughs> I really love I really love going out to a, a decent restaurant and really kind of savouring the moment and the look and the colours and the tastes and the smells and that kind of thing. Mm. I I quite like doing that kind of thing, particularly with somebody else who likes doing that as well. So any favourite types of food? I love curries, but I'm quite promiscuous in, in my eating habits. So I love the kind of local seasonal type thing. But the reality is I eat most things all the time. And I'm not afraid of going to get a kind of a dirty kebab. And I'm not afraid of going to a you know decent restaurant. So I, I all things in between count for me. And I can't be squished into a, a whole of, oh, I can't eat that. And I won't eat that. And I'll never eat this. I'll never eat that. I'll, I'll absolutely go for most things. But I do draw the line at trifle. Sorry, I can't. I can't do. That. <laughs> it's so you got. It's like you've got the custard bit, and I don't like vanillary egg. And you've got you've, you've often got jelly, which I can't abide. There's a physical thing that I can't do with that. <laughs> and sometimes you get bits of fruit in jelly, and then you get soggy sponge. Like I can't. I can't do that. And I really like to think that I'm non-judgmental and open-minded. It's very important in the work that I do. But obviously, <laughs> I've got I've got a bit of a, a thing about trifles. So um, okay. <laughs> take me anywhere, but not to a trifle restaurant if such a thing exists. <laughs> I've not seen. Well, yeah, I'm definitely I'm not really a trifle person either. Um, I'm lucky that it's not been one of my uh, one of our family dishes. 
So, uh, yeah. So you've, you've come on the Human Reboot today and when our guests are, are on here, we all always ask them about a time when they have rebooted. Would you be able to share a time when you feel that you've really had to pause and reflect and take stock and maybe change direction or overcome adversity? Yeah, there are a few moments in, in life where it really, really comes clearly to me that there was a real reboot. And I can see that looking back. Time, you don't, I, I didn't always know it was such a big reboot. But one was when I went through a redundancy process at the place where I worked, which was a global financial services company. The axe in such places swings every so often and people, hundreds of people, lose or leave their jobs. And I'd survived this particular swing of the axe. And I went back to my desk and you can imagine sort of dirty, grey, formica desk with all kind of like bits and bobs on it and the same old computer that took me ages to log on to every morning. And I was shaking. And I thought to myself, have I just had a very near miss and I'm having a bit of a kind of adrenaline rush at the end, edge of that? Is this the kind of feeling of cortisol running around my system? And then I thought to myself, no, it's not that I've just missed something. It's just that what if this grubby grey desk is it? What if I'm pushing PowerPoint presentations around for a living? What if that is it for my career? And that was terrifying. And in that moment of terror, I said to myself, right, if that axe is wielded again, if that redundancy opportunity comes around again, I'm taking it. And two weeks later, (laughs) (laughs) HR director rings up and says, oh, by the way, we are going to alter the new restructure, blah, blah, blah. You You know the rest. You're an HR expert. And I and I just at that point said, my values and your values are going in different directions. And how can I leave, please? And I managed to go through the consultation process and fill out the forms and score myself against my colleagues and all that kind of malarkey. And I really went quite fast along the change curve by depersonalizing myself, understanding that I was just a number and I was, you know, and I and I could explore and create a new kind of future. And that sense of exploration has been really helpful to me to understand that we have some agency and some choice and some power in what happens next, what the next act is going to be, even if the curtain coming down was not of my choice. Yeah. That has helped me it's helping me right now in my personal life and it and it helps me kind of in my work and try to explain to people that when difficult stuff happens and it will we do have some choice and agency in that that story doesn't quite end there because you know i i did leave a big organization i had a redundancy package and i then and I then really kind of had to kind of find my way and figure out what it was I was going to do. So the exploring bit before you actually jump yeah. is really positive. And then the jumping bit is terrifying again. Uh, but I found my feet and I started working with Time to Change, started reviewing employers on how they support people on mental health. And it was just a charity rate, but it was very fulfilling work. And, and helped me understand that, A, I could get my esteem back yeah. off, my own, off my own steam through my own skills, my internal locus, I guess they call it. And, um, <laughs> and that there was, there was a lot of hope. And, there was, and in fact, there was a new career in it. And I didn't know that there was a new career in it, but it was, this was 2012, 2013. And there was a bit of noise around mental health, but not a lot outside of the charity sector in the workplace and so I thought to myself well I might be sitting on a business idea here and so to wind it all the way back 
my slightly traumatic moment turned into a reboot that has shaped my career, for which I am now very, very grateful. And uh, yeah, we're grateful to have you on here today and to be able to share that story. Would you tell us a little bit more about what you now do? I do two things, Emma. I review workplaces and how they support people on mental health or not. And I train people, typically leadership teams, managers, non-managing staff, across some aspects of mental health in the workplace. I never, ever go into any therapeutic stuff yeah. because I think it's really important that therapists and qualified people do the therapeutic stuff. But what we can do is start to explore this notion that anyone can support, can coach, can guide, can listen to somebody else who is experiencing poor mental health. And that act, the non-therapeutic act, can help people towards the recovery that's right for them. I tend to do that for organisations. I don't do that for individuals. And I work with um, sectors including education and oil and manufacturing and chocolate. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) Trifle. And um, they... And I... (laughs) I don't know what I'd do if somebody asked me to work for a trifle-related organisation. But, you know, I, I have quite a broad range of clients and industries, and they are sometimes quite hairy and large and sometimes really small and beautiful and all things in between. So, yeah. so it, is, it is quite a mix of experiences that I, um, that I take on. So if you were, you were going into sort of review a workplace... What what sort of key things, you know, would you be asking someone to and asking an organisation about to kind of work out where they were on that mental health journey? What I'm interested in when I review workplaces is the context of the organisation, what they've done so far, uh, where they want to be and what gaps there might be between those two things. And so I look at stakeholders opinions and I interview people and I look at the HR policies and I try and imagine myself going through the HR procedures, typically absence, grievance, disciplinary, flex, health and safety, occupational health type stuff. So I know my way around that policy set. And then Perhaps the most significant thing I do is I interview people who've been unwell with stress, anxiety, depression, probably mild to moderate, whilst working for that organisation. And that is where the gold lies, because somebody who's been through a period of poor mental health will be able to tell you what the manager reaction was. How was the information? Did the training they've done make any difference to them? What they'd like from the HR policies and procedures? Was the occupational health team any good? Was the employee assistance program, did that stack up? They can give you a real cross-section of that lived employee experience, and that's of huge value. Yeah, so like the the operational-type perspective on the policy, in essence. So what is the reality? Yeah, the, the personal opinion about it. What because if you so this is just a bit of a guess, but most organizations will have a policy set that's probably written by somebody well-meaning in HR. And then it's gone through the legal mill. So it yeah. stacks up from that point of view. But they probably haven't ever had to sit at home and explain what that means to their partner when they've just been signed off from the doctor. So that is a very different, a much sort of saltier perspective that I can kind of bring to a review of policies. So I'll, I'll, yes, I'll spot some legal bits and bobs that might be missing, but I'm not a legal expert. But I'm, what I bring to it is this kind of what is the human experience in this policy? What is the human experience in this process? I know that that's what you're 
chief executive has communicated that this is what's happening on the ground. This is what actually happens when I try and um, say to my production operatives that I want them to ring this helpline. And they're looking at me going, why am I going to ring a helpline? I've got no idea who's on the end of that number. I've got no idea what that's about. Why am I going to tell them my secrets? When the hell am I going to make that phone call? Everybody knows what everyone's doing right here. There isn't even a room for me to go and, you know, take a nap, you know, whatever, take a piss. I can't access the stuff that you think is helping. So that's the kind of perspective that I bring to it. And sometimes I run a staff survey as well. So we have, at the end of it, we've got stakeholder view and we've got the stories from people. We've got the statistics of how many people this affects. And we've got um, a review of the HR stuff. And that data is quite a powerful recipe to play back to an organization and go, this is where I think you are. This is where I think you could be. And this is what you need to do. Yeah. And what I've found from your TEDx was that I thought, you know what, when I listened to it, I was like, that manager that looked after that person when they were ill and tried to put in place flexible adjustments and reasonable adjustments and kept up contact with them and you know and talked to them about what they really wanted and what what they thought would help them I was just like I did that I used to do that and actually that's why some of the people if I ever had people who were sick that generally they came back you know within like a six-week period Mm. it might not have been that they came back full-time within a six-week period but that was almost going against the policy and almost you had to kind of be really careful so it was easier as I became more senior because as an operational director you, you know you can kind of yes you follow the rules in terms of the processes and procedures but for example for us if you were going to apply for flexible working you could only apply for it once a year So I had to be really careful as to what point I asked them to apply for flexible working. It was more like, let's get you, let's find out, we'll bring you back in on reasonable adjustments. And then at an appropriate point, when we thought that was working, if there was no chance of them going back to where they were before, it was then applying for flexible working at that point. So it was really, it was quite restrictive in some ways because if you didn't get that right for them in terms of that flexible working and that request, which obviously then had to be approved by the business and HR and people higher than me, uh, like MD level, that in essence could mean that that person would leave. And if they were a high performer, that's not what you want in a business. There are, there are lots of things in what you just said there. So if you're in a situation where life is giving you a bit of kicking, because it's not all about work. In fact, far from it. It just shows mm-hmm. up at work commonly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Life is giving you a bit of a kicking. And it's difficult to talk to your manager. And it's difficult to run the HR process. It's difficult to have an adjustment. And then, and then from the company point of view, it's difficult to approve things because they've got this arbitrary policy that you can only apply once in a year. And it just makes life difficult. And if you you just describe a situation of maybe three or four people signing off an adjustment for somebody just to help them do their job. I mean, that's crazy. Flipping that, you have good managers, you can talk easily. It's an easy policy. It's an easy process. And they go, yeah, do you know what? We see you, we hear you, we value you, we're going to back you up. And you will never, you will never forget that. Mm-hmm. And not only, not only do you have less time off because it's not a kind of problem to come back, you actually you, you, you add to the loyalty you create allies in the organization. You show everybody, you not just tell them that well-being is important, you show them at the points when it matters most. And it really does matter. So people have I've, I've interviewed have said things like, my manager 
was so critical and so difficult with me, I went home and I started to contemplate suicide. Mm -hmm. Also said to me, my manager was so good with me and backed me up that I went home and I stopped contemplating suicide. It really can make that much of a difference. And I think, you, you know, you, you are, you're absolutely right. And, you know, there's been stats around for a long time around the reasons why people leave organisations. And often it is due to a line manager. It's due to some sort of conflict or not feeling supported or inability to talk to line manager or, you know, organisational change or not feeling safe. Um, there's lots of different reasons, but often there's some conflict there or something that's not working. And if you are a manager and you put your human hat on, the difference you can make to someone and the difference in terms of cost you can save a business because you're not having yeah. to re-recruit someone. Um you know, to refill those shoes and then get them up to speed and productive in that role. It might be that someone's not productive for three months, for example, because they're having personal issues or they're not able to work full time. But actually, when you kind of look at it from the different perspective, how long would it take for them to leave, advertise a job, recruit the person, find the right person, bring them in, get them inducted, train them and get them to productivity. You're probably talking nine to 12 months. And if you start to extrapolate that onto the salary of the person, then, you know, you, you start to see the numbers add up. Make no mistake. There is a legal case for getting this right. There is a moral case for getting this right. And there is a business financial case for getting this right. And they all lead to the same destination. If you support your people on mental health, it will cost you less. Full stop. Yeah. I don't, I don't, and, I, and I hear this kind of, well, if, you do, if we start talking about mental health, we'll have a tsunami of absence. Well, it hasn't happened yet in anybody I've reviewed. And also, people need to take time out. And they do it at the right stage with regards to their, their health. Then it's absolutely um, an economical thing to do because they won't get as ill so ill that they have to take months off you start taking months off you're not going to see that person again so not only do you have the point when they leave yeah and the recruitment and the training and the talent you've got the build up to that yeah it can be can be many months and i think some organizations shy away from that kind of process and they just sort of wait till it all gets so bad that it's intolerable for the individual or for the manager that all kind of kicks off. But if they were actually braver about those conversations sooner, whilst also respecting the legal side of all this, then actually some people do leave and that's okay. Rather than like with any relationship, it's better, I think, to sometimes call it and go, right, we're not happy, you're not happy. What are we going to do? And maybe that means that people don't stay at an organisation. I would never suggest that somebody is put in a process due to their mental health. It's no, that's, that's not fair. It's not lawful. But you, we have to understand that ongoing poor performance and poor behaviour might be explained by a little bit by what's happening in someone's life. But it's not excused, not in the long term. So we have to get that that balance right we have to be in a place where we can have these conversations because it saves a lot of problems downstream for the individual and for the organization and i think that's where where the huge the astronomical costs come in with with tribunals and things like that and the pain that that causes teams and the time for investigations and the kind of it's a very um costly and ugly thing to to have to do i think that much of it not all of it could be avoided if if we bring this stuff to the surface 
proper psychological safety at the front end, proper processes, you know, at the back end, and, and HR being a kind of centre of expertise that can handle the complex and, and difficult stuff. I don't think that HR ought to be a personnel kind of case manager for all aspects of mental health. That's not what that's not what we're there for. I think a lot of this and the best interventions, particularly reasonable adjustments, are available and should be handled by the direct line manager as close as possible yeah. to the incident or the chain of command. And that's where you get the best interventions. I'll give you a little brilliant little example of this. I was in a taxi and the taxi driver said, I think I'd asked something like, what's the traffic like? Some, some milky question that you ask in a taxi. And he said, I don't really know, mate. Um, I normally work nights, but my wife has depression. And my controller said, I don't want you working nights because you just told me that's when your wife's depression is worse. So I want you working days for the next six weeks while she gets herself a counsellor, sorts out medication, whatever she needs to do. And then you can go back to work at night. And I thought to myself, that's it, isn't it? That is a taxi controller who's seen into the life of somebody who's a good employee. It's not even happened to the employee. It's happened to his wife. And he's gone, right, I can tweak this. I can make adjustments. I can sort this. I can make this easy. I keep my person and I keep his skills. And you just think, yeah, it's so obvious. It's almost, you almost don't notice it when it goes well. But you'll never forget it when you're treated badly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes as well, that's almost the prevention. So what they've done is they've stepped in and prevented him from getting to a point where he's so stressed that he's going down the route of mental illness. Yeah, or being unsafe behind the wheel, because a lot of this does relate to kind of basic safety. It's It's why health and safety is part of the title of the Dear Executive. And they know this stuff and they've got the evidence here. The, the stuff that I, I ask, if I run a survey or if I interview people about, it's not new. I haven't magicked this up out of some special kind of wizard formula. The health and safety executive have been doing this and actually asking organisations to do some of this for years. Yeah. Every organisation, more than five people, needs to have some kind of consultation or stress risk assessment to help understand the hot spots and the problems in the company and the cool spots where it's going well and understand how to to manage those across different departments and things like that. And those, the question sets that they ask, I think they might be a little unsophisticated for some organisations, but nevertheless, the categories are very important. And you listed them earlier, Emma, it's demands, it's relationships, it's change, it's support, it's control and my sense of control. And these are the kind of things that really make a difference to an individual. And within that individual, you know, their work in relationships. Imagine the ripples coming out here across the team, across the department, across the organisation. And if people aren't thinking about that, and having conversations about it and just simply asking their people what it's like, then they're missing out on a lot of fantastic information about culture, performance, and indeed operational changes that could make it more efficient or a better place or a better product, that kind of thing. This idea of psychological safety is not just about protecting your ass from people screwing up. It's about getting the good stuff out of people who've got brilliant ideas as well. And that is a very positive and inclusive and and hopeful way to look at all this. And, you know, in the world we're living now, we need to be agile and we need to be able to adapt. And often those people on the ground have some of the best ideas. So, you know, being able to create an environment where people feel that they can open up and can give ideas and ways forward it's never been more critical to be able to do that that's right i think that we have we have a a big opportunity of conversation and dialogue around well-being in general and as one of my clients put it we, we must not waste this crisis because out of difficult traumatic times come new learning and growth and 
ideas of how we can do things differently. And they often, they're often a bit of an earthquake. Mm-hmm. Things. And I think we could reasonably describe the past 16 months like that. But after an earthquake, there is, you know, the difficulties and there's grief. And we, we acknowledge that and we give space for that. But then we rebuild. Yeah. And we come up with new stuff. And there's this, this concept of post-traumatic growth. Yeah. That's very powerful, I think. So when people think about difficult times and we think about post-traumatic stress, and I and I completely get that what kind of clinical trauma point of view. But also other things happen that are less reported and less talked about, such as people finding community and shared purpose and growth. And those are very powerful, positive things for organizations to feel. Yeah. They find, you know, when you come over when you overcome adversity and you come out the other end, you've built confidence, you've built some resilience, and you know, you're you're coming out the end with a bit of wisdom that you can that you can overcome things no matter what in life is thrown at you so just to bring it a little bit well back a little bit in your TEDx talk you talk quite a lot about presenteeism in the workplace and that's was just a discussion that I wanted to kind of talk to you about because I think there's a lot of that going on where organizations you know where people People don't know that they are really stressed or, you know, on the verge of burnout, for example. And this is, you know, potentially with, you know, high achievers, high, high performers who perhaps don't have those sort of healthy boundaries. So high achievers are often our listeners and it is very much the premise of the reboot. You know, a lot of the work that I do is all around kind of that prevention part and trying to get organizations and people to know and to listen to themselves so that they are aware so that they don't get to the point where I got to and the organization I work for they didn't spot it as it being mental health they knew that I probably just wasn't me and I was being probably more difficult and quite cynical and quite distrusting of what was going on And, you know, I do believe a big part of that was where I was at in the process of burnout. So just really your thoughts really around that part. I think one of the symptoms of stress is that we, A, we work harder and we actually increase our energy towards a kind of situation. And as a result of that energy increase, we notice sometimes less about ourselves and our own behaviour. So this is a bit clumsy, but one of the symptoms of stress is that you don't recognize your own stress. And I know this because it happened to me about two weeks ago, where you'll correspond with this, Emma, where I'd been fighting a kind of financial services kind of dispute. And I hadn't realized how much of it I was holding and how much it was taking out of me. And I had a good result after that. But on the same day, I had one two and a half hour and then another two hour online training that I had to deliver. Yeah. And it just took it out of me in a way that I wasn't expecting. I had this kind of, this sort of, I can only describe it as like my fatigue, like a real kind of physical dropping fatigue. Yeah. I literally couldn't look at the screen, couldn't look at my emails. And the other thing that was very surprising, I stopped being able to engage and care about my work in the same way. I literally just could have walked out of my own self-employed job. (laughs) (laughs) I had things to do. But I could have just gone, I could have just gone to a tatty caravan with some tins of beans and just sat there and done, you know, almost nothing. And I never, I never have that. And I was staggering around. I couldn't see straight. I couldn't focus properly. So I had, effectively, I had a, I had a burnout episode. Yeah. And it was temporary. And this is the well-being guy who's supposed to know this stuff. But I didn't spot it coming. I only spotted it when he was there. That said, 
I recognised what was happening sooner than I would have done. Yeah. Um, like in years gone by. And I've had I've had major stress, anxiety and depression before and three months out of work. But that was 15 years ago. And, you know, I, and so I had this episode recently and I, and I always think to myself, we do have to communicate this stuff to people, particularly to people who think that it's something that happens to somebody else. Yeah. Or is that it's a pink and fluffy sort of subject. Yeah. Or it's for millennials or some other slightly dinosaur haphazard opinion about it because they're, they're terrified of talking about it themselves. We have to keep communicating it. And the way in which we communicate that is very important. Because if I were to run an open sort of training session in an organization, I'd probably find 80 to 90% of the attendees would be female. Yes. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But if mandatory sessions, you do get a good response from the fellas and they do correspond with it in a really good factory environment. They actually quite like it, but they're not, they're not going to step across the threshold easily. So we've got to communicate it. We've got to communicate it in the right way. And we've also got to probably slightly repeatedly communicating it without over shoving it down people's throats. Because if you're making chocolates or if you're carving this out and the other, if you're teaching people, that's your job. It's not mental health. <laughs> so we, you know, we there is a limit here as to how much you communicate as well. So I think those things are quite important to, to get this subject across but it's not just about some trainer coming in and they could we could run the best session in the world couldn't we Emma? Yeah. if their manager's never spoken about it or if the manager starts going <laughs> cuckoo or something like that yeah when people yeah. in other people are talking about mental health yeah or they're having a meltdown again or yeah or taking the piss yeah or doing more subtle stuff like going going at a company gathering oh mental health is really important to us and i really want us to look after our well-being and now can you welcome on stage the three the three people who worked for a month nights and all those kind of things without taking a break and i want them to be rewarded by you know and they've got this extra this that and the other and you're thinking hang on a minute you've just told me that well-being is important and then you're also celebrating people who are massively and dangerously overworking so it's we can't we've got to get this right and there are roles for all sorts of people in the organization and when you've just talked about that and around those sorts of pressures within an organization or it's really interesting because often when you're like well how are you doing in terms of mental health what do you do as an organization Mm. and then when you start to look at the reality of it And I was having a conversation with someone last week and both of us work in a similar field and we're saying, isn't it interesting, even when you have conversations with a CEO or an MD and you have a conversation with them and they're like, we are massively, massively supporting mental health. And then you talk about, we've just put this training process in place and it's really to try and um, make sure that people, you know, our managers thrive and then we take them on this course and then they've got to present back within five days or for example, or we don't really take lunch breaks because we haven't actually got anywhere where we can take lunch breaks. So people eat at their desks or I'm the CEO and I don't really take a break away from my office. I don't go for a walk. I don't step away from my desk. It's almost like we're creating sometimes as leaders very subtle pressures that we don't necessarily want to have within our organisation, but by us leading in that way and doing those things, we create unhealthy pressures for other people and unhealthy expectations because that's what they think they have to do to be successful. This is huge, isn't it? So if I've just joined an organisation, I'm desperate to fit in. And it doesn't matter almost which level, I I am going to mimic those behaviours because that's what success looks like. I look at the manager in my team, I look at the head of department, I look at the director, I look at the CEO and I go, 
that is how it that is how to behave if I'm gonna fit into this. Because frankly, we're baboon in suits. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and we look up and we see what happens at the top and we do it ourselves, roughly speaking. And when we get self-care right, it's not selfish because we role model it for the rest of the organization. We can show people, not just tell people that well-being is important. And it's not in the HR policy where this makes a difference. It's the is their contact when I'm on holiday? Is there the emails yeah. out of hours? It's what was my manager like when you know two people in the team were in tears in the toilet? That those are the moments of truth that your team is going to remember and tell everybody yeah. about. <laughs> no one goes home going, oh, look at the new, look at the new um well-being policy. It's not gonna happen. But if my manager was brilliant or was a knob, then I'm going to tell everybody yeah. about that. And I think that is a really important piece of the this whole thing with this kind of, it's not really about public relations. It's about the real experience of working at an organisation. And you can get this, you can get this out, you can get this so right as well. And, and plenty of people do. And people need to be shown and regularly and repeatedly, I think. And sometimes when you're in it, you don't see it either. And that's why sometimes having someone like you or me that comes into an organisation and then looks at it from an outside perspective can really help you to find what it, it what it is that you're doing well, because you've actually always been doing that. So you just thought that that was just something that was average and expected well actually compared to some other organizations you're doing it brilliantly but also also highlights that potentially some things that you're not doing and that you could be doing and that are quite easy to implement yes when I do a review I managed to get information that an organization couldn't get for itself so they'll know an HR team will typically know the people who they've supported and it's gone well, and they'll probably know the people who, for whom it hasn't gone well and they've kind of left. But a large part of this is trying to hear from the people who we don't know about, who haven't come forward, who are experiencing barriers, or they or they're, they're not, they don't feel psychologically safe to speak up in their team or in this organization yet. And when I do a review, I get stuff that they can't get. And I also see into really try and get a feel of what it's like it's not 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 kind of like you know Stanislavski method acting into the role I just I just get a real um, sense of what it would feel like to read that policy when I'm ill or to see the corporate communications about well-being and to have that kind of the reality of it. Silly example, I was an interim director covering HR and legal at one organisation, housing association. And during my time there, I, I noticed that they'd run out of peppermint tea in the staff kitchen. So I said, oh, I'm going to get some more tea bags. So, can I have some more peppermint? Can I order some more peppermint tea bags? This chap said no. They were only there for well-being week. <laughs> so, so sometimes you have these kind of intentions or activities or campaigns and that kind of thing, and they just they just don't sink in. Yeah. Yeah. You might go, but we've done well-being week. No, we had a great time. You know, we did all this, we did that, and we had this talk and that. But it doesn't last. It runs out like the peppermint tea bags. And, and companies, employers need to know this and make those the type of changes that are really substantial. Because we can't just say to people, oh, you can go on this resilience course. You can go on the training. You'll be fine. It'll all be all right. Not. It takes 
multiple roles at multiple levels to get this right. It includes the CEO turning up for his or her staff. It includes HR being the centre of expertise. It includes managers knowing the signs, how to have a safe conversation. It includes people going, oh, right, yes, so digital burnout is a thing. Or actually, yes, I can look out for my mate and it's not such a pink fluffy thing after all if he's acting on a night shift. When all those things come together, that is, I think, where it can become quite beautiful and that experts do not have to be therapists to be providers of that kind of catalyst of, of data and information and ideas no i i've worked i've worked in you know i've worked in change you know pretty much change management you know transformation and change and and increasing performance for years and coaching and training people you know to be the best things they can be or supporting them through change and looking at where you are being aware aware as an organization looking at where you are now and where you want to be and thinking right okay well we've only got this budget because that sometimes happens in the beginning doesn't it it's like it starts well we've only got this budget to spend not everything that you need to do for well-being it shouldn't be seen as a short-term project it should be seen as a long-term thing so okay well that's your budget for this year let's demonstrate what's what's worked what how what's going to work for us when we invest that money in it what is your you know what are the measures we're going to have and what's what's you know what's the return on investment that we're going to get and I think when I work with organizations I will often say to them now are you wanting to kind of tick this off or is this something that you see is going to be a long-term thing that you want to embed into your organization? Because for me, it's a, it's a cultural shift that we need. It's from mm. the top. And I'm sure that I have read something somewhere about, and I'm sure this was time to change. Didn't you have something like eight steps or something that they had to implement? I think it was, I'm sure it was, I think they had like eight steps they had to, and one of those was leadership. And some organizations implemented those seven steps, but the leadership never bought into it and it never worked. And some organizations, the leadership bought into it and they implemented two of those things. And actually the results and the well-being of the staff, just because those leaders had bought into it and got it and saw it for the long term meant that there was a real shift in mental health and well-being within that within those organizations i think that the leadership is the driver of you know the emotional cultural response of people and it's huge it's the yeah. thing that really guides our decisions we like to think it's our prefrontal cortex and <laughs> the logic but actually it's the emotional center in the brain that really drives us to to stay to be loyal to do our best stuff or to leave or to have a fight you know all those things yeah and I think like you that that the multiple roles but has to be led by the leadership team because if they're not showing up the baboon is going to look up and go look at the alpha male and go that's not happening if I'm an employee and I'm looking up at my chief executive and I go oh she's She's not interested in this. Well, she says she is, but she's she's acting differently. Then I'm not going to buy into it. No, I'm not going to buy into it. I'm either going to start copying the way that she is, or I'm going to vote with my feet and go somewhere else. So you mentioned before about kind of being, you know, working in the sector that we're in, and often people think, oh well, you know, they're perfect. And they shouldn't really experience stress. And I think it's a really good point that you made. Of course we do. But often it is about noticing it earlier and knowing what to do and how to manage it. And I think that's the difference between, because that's what happened to me. I didn't spot it and I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to look after myself in that way. So, you know, for me, it's those two parts. And a huge thing that we talk about on the reboot, well, where the name of the human reboot came from so human reboot was because I massively believe in human leadership 
and treating people as humans so that they don't get to a point where they feel numb like I did. So that's the human part. But the other part about the reboot is how we switch off so that we can switch on and perform at our best. So how do you switch off so you can switch on and perform at your best? My list includes sea swimming. I have a collection of friends that do that or lakes or whatever in winter. Can I just say though, if I say, oh, I'm the wellbeing guy and I do sea swimming, you might be imagining some sort of wet-suited channel swimming champion. (laughs) No, I just love splashing around in the summer months in the sea, but I'll bust out a few kind of strokes, right? And that we've got, a, I think we're kind of quick to assume that well-being is some sort of super well-being place. I just like, I like doing nothing with a sand between my toes. I like frying sausages on a naff stove. I like reading a book that I've read before because I'm familiar with it and I enjoyed it and I, it's easy. I like stillness and the warmth of the ground on a on a sunny kind of camping day. I like the feel of grass and you know, and I like tromping around festivals dressed up stupid. I like play with my she's eight tomorrow. I better call her an eight-year-old. I like that because we do some ridiculous stuff. And it I find those things take my mind away from what is quite an intense subject yeah, and, and a subject that you've, you've described how it gets into some of your, you know, roots and your core experiences. And, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear about those, but I'm very pleased that you've turned that into something so positive. Mm-hmm. And overall, it is positive for me, but I'm still aware that I, I have my places and I've got to be careful yeah about my my resources mm-hmm. my energies the way I think about stuff the other thing I do quite like doing is I'm quite learning I like learning about this subject I'm not a big formal course type learner but I read lots of books and I like the quietness and I like the stillness and it takes me away from a screen and if I'm reading it probably means that there's peace or I'm in my so I've half of my little garden I've let grow wild and I like sitting in there and I could read about mental health statistics or I could read about David Hockney painting in Normandy and and that allows me to go into the introvert version of myself because I have one of those as well as the presenter version of myself and that downtime that time out of the performance zone I can literally feel my adrenaline, my cortisol and my diaphragm and my just stuff just kind of sinking. Yeah. That that's really important. Yeah. I I I have to be relatively relaxed to read, if that makes sense. So what I found was like historically, I the only time I read when I was on was when I was on holiday because I felt like I couldn't fit any more in my brain. How sad is that? Whereas now, well. I've even written, you know, written a book. I write a lot. I read a lot. So I'm involved in a couple of book clubs, you know. So it's just, it's that kind of whole self-development, isn't it? Sure is. And yeah, good for you for recognising that because actually the super stimulated brain is not in a space where it's ready for logical learning type information because by its nature, we're super stimulated. We're probably somewhere in the kind of limbic emotional response to something or supercharged and we've got other priorities the brain and the body have other priorities at those times I like the fact that you now access this and and you brought it in and you recognized it and there's space for your this kind of time and activity because I think fighting for we used I think it used to be that we we had quite kind of stable lives and then we found we, we, we went out to seek the stimulation parties or clubs or whatever it is wherever your thing is and now in the past 16 18 months we're we're on this alert we've got to actively go out and seek the rest the quiet time the downtime the non-performance stuff because we're sort of like flipped yeah experiences 
So I, so I think fighting for it and telling other people about it. So I, and even actually telling yourself that it's okay. I used to record the amount of days where I was doing delivery and chargeable. That was the way I helped manage my business and that kind of stuff. And I, and I still do that. But I now also record uh, on my little, I'm going to, sh- I'm going to show you a little, my little, for the benefit yeah. of people listening. Oh, You've shown me that before, yeah. <laughs> my planner's smaller. I showed you my small planner and you showed me your huge wall planner. <laughs> it's really not a bad size. The point is it's got Emma, it's got dots on it, Emma. And I and I I put in a light blue dot for me, for me, my stuff, my rest time, my downtime. So I still I did record the business stuff. Of course I do. But I also validate my non-work stuff but before I didn't and that was my value set that you had to work you had to increase your income and that kind of thing I actually I find it's equally valid to have time out of that performance so yeah switching off so you can switch on and perform at your best yeah and if I don't I end up in trouble yeah and that's a lesson I learned when I was doing PR burning the candle at both ends 15 years ago if there was in, somebody had given me another end of the candle, I'd have burned that as well. I thought I was really going, going for it, going for it, going for it. I was overworking. I was working nights. I wasn't taking on my holiday. The relationship failed. Well, you can kind of guess the rest. Yeah. I really had a really big spiral. And, and certainly part of that was not recharging and recovering and restoring myself. I now know that I need to do that. I will never, I will never, ever be smashing it at the gym five in the morning, power through, you know, whatever, dressed in a suit, go, you know, work through my commute. Just not that sort of person. And if I were to try and be that sort of person, I would be injured. Yeah. And I also think that sometimes people can do that for a certain length of time but I do think that people get to a point where sometimes there's a lot of women that get to a point where they exit the corporate world because it gets to a point where the balance is just too much and men as well you know they get to a point where they just you know again the balance is too it is too much or they're fine when everything's okay but when stuff goes on outside of work and that routine, that kind of almost perfect routine where everything's precisely managed, you know, does have a huge effect. So if you were going to share your flourishing formula for living, so any mental fitness tips, mantras, anything you really live your life by, is there anything you could share with our listeners? I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little sneaky share. Go on then. You're better off without booze. You asked for a mantra. That was mine. When I stopped drinking, I can't even remember, four years ago, something like that. And my life is better in every single way. I'm less anxious, I'm less agitated, I've got more money, everything works <laughs> in the body in like a really lovely way. And I, I have to say, that was the best decision I ever made. But that's my stuff. And I wanted to share that because it can be done. Yeah. You can leave this stuff out and you can make improvements. I spoke about empowerment and choice and these things, and it is possible. I'm living proof of that. The other thing I'm going to say to people is try less hard and just loosen the grip a bit and loosen the grip on what well-being looks like, what performance looks like. And yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say that to, you know, somebody who's going to go to Tokyo and compete. <laughs> Increase your grip. Do I go for it? But for most of us, just letting go 5% would probably be very healthy for most of us. So we understand that performance isn't always elite, super, smashing it, Dubai lifestyle type performance, because not. And well-being is not a sculpted six pack on Instagram with the wind in your hair or the sunset. Sometimes well-being is shifting yourself from a two out of 10, crying on the sofa, 
because life is giving you a kick in to a three out of 10 where I'm going, do you know what? I'm going to go for a walk. And that has helped me. And that's something I try and convey in the sessions that I run so that people can, can feel it in their way and they can access it in their way. And they, and they know that sometimes these little small steps can be very valuable in the big picture. 1% change every other day. That's a lot yeah. at the end of the year. Absolutely. And uh, I like how you say about kind of, I use um, stressometers, moodometers, energy gauges, you know, I try and encourage, you know, we, in my journaling, I look at kind of how am I feeling out of 10 today, you know, or, um, you know, and generally I'm normally an mm. eight or a nine, but, you know, if something happens or there's, you know, a lot of stress or whatever, then it could be that that, that stress does, you know, that, that might drop to a six or a seven, but I know actually that's quite a big change from a nine. So what do I need to do? What is it that's doing it? And what changes do I need to make to make that happen? And it's been, it's just been aware and thinking, actually, do you know what? I am important and I might be a mum and be a leader of a business and, you know, my clients are really important and my children are really important and my husband's important and my mum's important and my dad's important and my sister's important. All that, they're all really, really important. But if I don't look after me first, then it's kind of all pointless, isn't it? So, yeah, that's that's kind of where, where I've got to with, with mine. But I, lo- I love an energy gauge. And yesterday I even, I coached someone at the, who... Is, is having a bit of a hard time and we're, we were doing some well-being coaching and at the beginning of the session I said tell me where your energy used to be where it used to be what did you use to if you're going to gauge it where would it used to be and it was like and your mood and both for both it was like well eight or nine eight or nine and then more recently I, I'm a five so for me that's because that's how I, it also helps me to gauge how close how can I help this person or is this, am I referring them to therapy? So, because if they need to look back and look at trauma or whatever, then that's, but Mm. if if they're looking forward and actually it's more coping mechanisms and things like that we can put in place to help them manage their life or understand well-being more or whatever. And then, um, and then by the end of the session, so we'd put one technique in place by the end of the session, I said, go on, then tell me how's your mood and how's your energy? And she said, it's really helped, really helped talking and really helped kind of visual, being able to visualize it. Because even though we're on, you know, Zoom with a lot of my clients, I'll do, vis- you know, things visually with them. And she said, I'm a seven. So that was in, you know, it, it was quite a long session. It was, it was t- a two hour session, but it was by looking after yourself and prioritizing yourself, you can shift those, shift that mood. You can shift that energy. It's just sometimes looking at things in a different way or trying something new. I think that's the huge power of coaching and letting that, letting that into your life when you're ready is, is a very, is a wonderful thing. And as with all sort of successful kind of therapeutic treatments, I think that the importance of kind of your desire to change and believing in the possibility of change and having hope that you can, I think they're really valuable things. And I, I use, the, the other thing to say is that I use counselling services and therapeutic support a lot. Not all the time, but I think I've yeah. had five different types of counselling and plenty of people I go walking and talking with. Yeah. Labelling my stuff, speaking it, letting it out. Somebody else just hearing me without trying to fix me, solve me. It's been really valuable to me, particularly recently. And if there was any book you could recommend or communities or anything, what would what would that be? I'm quite a fan of Brené Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us. But the book, the books I'm reading, one is Johan Hari's Lost Connections. That is a very, he's a very powerful audio book. Mm. Really stop you in the street kind of audio book. Very passionate, right. very okay. powerful. Johan Hari's Lost Connections. And the one that most recently, I think, came out in March time. Lucy Folks, Losing Our Minds. What mental illness really is and what it isn't. Lots of data in there. 
and that appeals to the sort of data side of my brain fabulous and if anyone wants to get in touch with you how are they best to do that find me on linkedin or find me at bamboo mental health and um, i'm a very real person and you can get in touch with me through those thank you so much for joining me today i've absolutely loved this and I think we've probably become friends over, uh, over, you know, over our couple of meetings. So I don't yeah. have to feel like a stalker anymore. So that's good. <laughs> Emma, you wanted to get me to say something that would be a helpful snippet for your training or anything like that. Just ask away. I, I don't think that we hold some kind of legal right to the stuff we do. I think the more people that did took what we take to organizations will be will be a good thing because a lot of them need it that's my sense particularly at the moment so i'm i've had a nice time on this chat as well and if i've got anything that you or your listeners want you can have it oh thank you tom i've absolutely loved you joining me on the human reboot podcast thank you so much thank you for listening to the human reboot podcast i'm emma last And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star podcast review and visit thehumanrebootmovement.com where you can find downloadable free resources, sign up to my mailing list or connect with me on social. So that's thehumanrebootmovement.com. Let's switch off so we can switch on. It's time for your human reboot.